You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 1. We'll start reading in verse 1 just to help us get the context for verses 11 through 18, which is where we'll be today. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name... He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So just as a reminder of some of the things that we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks, we talked specifically about how John wrote this gospel so that we could believe in Jesus, we could believe for salvation. So he has very carefully uh, calculated what he is going to recollect about the life of Jesus. Um, And so we've seen Jesus as the eternally pre-existent creator Um, We've seen him sustaining creation. We've seen him equal with God, yet distinct from God as the second person of the Trinity. Um, And so we've talked about how we need to have proper, right theology about Jesus as he has revealed himself in Scripture. But we also, from an application point, have talked about how we want to trust him more and more. So it's a, a gospel that leads us into salvation, but it's also a gospel that's meant to cause us to continue believing in him. And so we want that rapid reaction to life circumstances to be to trust Jesus more and more, to kind of close that gap down of our times of anxiety and worry and not trusting him, that more and more we find ourselves coming to Jesus uh, in an attitude of trust uh, when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances. And then last week we talked about pointing others to the light. Um, That just as John the Baptist was sent to tell others about Jesus, we are also called to point every man to Jesus with purpose, intentionality, humility, confidence, and resilience. And we said that we have a responsibility to make much of Jesus, that we're to be intentional to point every man to Jesus without exception or distinction. Um, We said that the gospel certainly comes to to us in that way, and, and we're to point people in that direction. Um, we're to be humble in making less of others and ourselves in light of Jesus, that we don't see other people as our light, um, which protects us from the fact that if others fall away, we keep pressing on. And so um, there's always going to be people that are very influential in our life um, in regards to our sanctification and our growth, pastors, youth pastors, uh, older men and women in our life, but uh, they're not the light. And so if they falter, if they fail, it doesn't affect our faith. We keep pressing on because Jesus is the light. It also protects us from, us from becoming so prideful that we see ourselves as the light, that, that we ultimately don't need the glory uh, for others' growth, uh, that ultimately we're pointing people to Jesus, right? And so uh, we need to be confident that Jesus is relevant to others because he is their creator, so we have absolutely every right to speak to others about Jesus. 
We need to be prepared for resistance about him, that, that the world loves its darkness, and, and we have a responsibility to bring light into the darkness. So application-wise, last week we talked about in the area of work and family, our neighborhoods, our hobbies, uh, where are we succeeding and struggling to shine light? Where, where are we succeeding in bringing light into those situations? And which areas need some attention from us? Where do we need to be more intentional about bringing light into our context? All right, today we talk about receiving the light and what that specifically looks like. It says that Jesus came to his own. His people did not receive him, but those that did, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So our summary sentence for today, Jesus comes to give a visible representation of God's glory, calling all men to respond to him in faith as he has made himself known with the promise of life-changing benefits for all that do. Jesus comes to give a visible representation of God's glory, calling all men to respond to him in faith as he has made himself known with the purpose of life-changing benefits or the promise of life-changing benefits for all that do. For our kids, if we believe in Jesus, we become a child of God. And so Jesus is the visible representation of the Godhead. He is the, the, the one who comes in human form to give us that perfect representation of who God is. In doing so, he calls all men to respond to him in faith as he's made himself known. And so uh, there's, there's specific things that Jesus reveals about himself that it's, ne- it's necessary for us to believe, right? So it's not just believing in any Jesus, it's believing in the Jesus of the Bible, the, the way that Jesus revealed himself. Because there's many religions that say things about Jesus, we have to get Jesus right for salvation, all right? Um, and John's very clear about that, both in his Gospels and in the first and second epistles that he writes later in the New Testament. We have to get our understanding of Jesus correct for salvation to be true in our life, okay? So visible representation of God's glory calls all men to respond to him in faith as he's made himself known, and there's promises of life-changing benefits that come for those who do this. All right, let's jump right into the text, jump right into our notes uh, this morning with the time that we have remaining. Number one, what we see here in the text is that we need to be aware that many will refuse Jesus. Many will refuse Jesus. For our kids, many people choose to not believe in Jesus, We see that here in verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. Now, who's that in reference to? Well, he's referencing the Jewish nation. He's referencing those who uh, long ago had been made particular promises for how they fit into God's plan, right? So the promise of the gospel, the promise of the Savior, the promise of the The one who would crush the head of the serpent was given all the way back in Genesis 3. But then God, as he continues to reveal his plan, reveals to Abraham and to his descendants that it's through that lineage, through that line, that the Messiah would actually enter the earth. And so um, they've got these promises, these prophecies, that they were to be the ones looking particularly for the fulfillment of the Messiah, to be absolutely looking for Jesus to come. And so when Jesus comes to his own people, They do not receive him, but that in no way means that God's plans have been thwarted. This was certainly anticipated and planned for, and and we see throughout the New Testament that in response to the Jewish rejection, God absolutely planned for it to open the the door for the Gentile salvation, right? And so we see uh, droves of Gentiles in the New Testament coming to faith in Christ, and most of us can trace our spiritual heritage, our salvation to that glorious fact that the Gentiles came in droves to salvation as a result of the Jewish rejection. Now, 
God holds them accountable for this rejection for a couple of reasons. One, and this is true for all men, we've been given revelation to respond to, particularly general revelation. We have general revelation to respond to, and so God certainly holds us accountable for what we do with that. Uh, In Romans chapter 2, in regards to general revelation, we see that therefore you have no excuse, O man, verse 1, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Right? So he's, he's calling all men to this responsibility that they are going to be judged by the same judgment that they pass upon others. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Verse 12, for all have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And so God's very clear that all man is held accountable for the revelation that's been given to him, right? And so we all have general revelation Romans 1 testifies to that, that, that we can all see uh, the eternality of God and his, his divine power through creation. So we all have revelation to respond to, but in context here in John, the Jewish people had special revelation to respond to as well. Not just the general revelation piece, but the special revelation piece. They had opportunity to respond uh, and rejected even further than the general revelation piece. Okay, Um, and they're held accountable for that rejection. Number two, not only do we have revelation to respond to, we are held accountable for our rejection. Now, what was some of the general or what was some of the special revelation that Israel had? Well, they had all the prophecies that came from prophets in the Old Testament. So special revelation is God very specifically communicating things about himself through man, through his word, through dreams, various ways in the Old Testament. So the prophets communicated to the people, this is what we should should expect. These are things that have been promised to us, right? And then I love what Luke chapter 7 has to say, because there, some of uh, John the Baptist's followers come and talk to Jesus. There's some questions about, man, have we missed this? Is Jesus the Messiah? He's not functioning exactly like we anticipated. And Jesus's response is not to just flat out say, I'm the Messiah, right? His response is to say, go back and tell John, These are the things that I'm doing, right? That the blind see, that the deaf hear, that the lame walk. What was he doing? He was verifying these are the things that the Messiah will do. And look around you. That's exactly what it is that I'm doing. So the miracles that Jesus performs are meant to testify to who he is. So you've got the prophecies in the Old Testament. You have Jesus showing up who begins to work these miracles to verify that he is the Messiah, the one that John the Baptist has been so faithfully pointing them to, right? And so they've got special revelation, but like I said, this is something that was absolutely anticipated, and God, uh, or Jesus gives this parable in Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. It says, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. 
And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So Jesus shares this parable and says, man, it's like a a landowner who, who puts some people in charge of the land and then leaves and then sends servants and they're rejected by the tenants, and, and they kill him. And he says, the, the landowner ends up sending his son, right, thinking, well, they'll surely accept my son, and they put him to death as well. And it's a picture of what Israel has done historically. God sends prophets, they rejected the prophets. God sends his son, they reject his son and crucify him. Jesus is saying these things before they've actually done these things, right? Even the, pro- even the Pharisees here perceive He's talking about us, and it does nothing to change the trajectory of where they were going, right? They continue to reject him, and they go forward with the crucifixion. So they are held accountable for their rejection. Why is that important? Because as we get deeper into this text, we find that salvation is of God and of God alone, that we ourselves can't generate salvation. We can't create salvation. We certainly can't create it in the lives of others, that it's a work of God. But we have to carefully balance the fact that we don't just sit back and say, okay, if salvation is all of God, then we'll simply wait upon him to do so, that we play a role in bringing the gospel to others, right? And others are held accountable for their rejection. So even though salvation is a work of God, Scripture is also very clear to say man is held accountable for his rejection. Man is absolutely held held accountable for his rejection. It says that he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. They did not receive him, but, verse 12, to all who did receive him. So there's this there's generalization here that's taking place in 10 and 11, right? The, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But lest we think that the mission failed and that nobody received him, John's very clear to remind us, those who did receive him, those who believed in his name, they received special benefits. They, gave, they were given the right to become children of God. And they were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And some of this language anticipates what's to come in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus comes asking some similar questions that, that are uh, centered around the fact of how does, the, how does salvation take place and how does the new birth take place? And so John is alluding to some things that he'll expound upon even further in John chapter 3. And so number two in our notes is that we have a responsibility to be responsive to Jesus as he is continually made known to us that we need to respond to Jesus as he is continually made known to us. And I stress the idea there of being responsive to Jesus as he's continually made known to us because this message is for all of us, whether you're, whether you're a Christian yet or not, right? It certainly applies to those who are not Christians this morning, those who are not believers. And some of our kids have yet to make a confession of faith, and so this certainly applies to them. They need to be responsive to Jesus, 
right? But for those of us that are Christians, we have to continue being responsive to Jesus as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of him, right? So some of us get saved at an early age. We believe the, 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 the information that's been given to us about Jesus. We've been exposed to a little bit of Jesus, and we respond accordingly to some of those basic foundational truths about him. And then we show ourselves to be true Christians as we grow and as more of Jesus is told to us and we respond accordingly to that new information, right? Uh, give you an example. And I told you, the topic from Wednesday, very relevant for, for today's culture. Uh, Ryan, who comes and teaches here sometimes, Ryan teaches eighth grade Bible at Trinity, has a girl who's really re- re- uh, wrestling with some of this idea of same-sex attraction and, and the gospel and can you be a Christian and be accepting of this type of lifestyle. So she sends him an email and says, hey, what do I what do? I do? I've got a family member who claims to be a Christian but kind of follows this lifestyle. Can they be both? Can they do both, right? And so my response would be is that our five-year-old kids don't have to fully understand some of the things that go along with that topic to become a Christian, right? They have to know about Jesus, and they have to know who Jesus is and that they're a sinner in need of a Savior and that, that Jesus comes to fix those problems and he died on the cross for them and he rose again. But true Christians who have responded to that piece about Jesus as they continue to grow in their sanctification and they're exposed to more in-depth teachings and commands from his word, they respond and yield to themselves to that as well. Right? They continue to respond to Jesus as he teaches them more about himself. There's that initial believing faith. Man, I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus fixes that problem. I believe that he's perfect for me. I believe he died for me. I believe he rose again. I'm placing my trust in that, right? And if I've truly placed my trust in that, as I get older and I find out that he's got specific commands for how I do certain things, if I'm a true Christian, I keep responding to those things, right? So um, we, we have to be responsive to Jesus as he is continually made known to us. For our kids, believing in Jesus means we trust him. And if we really trust him, when we get to be 15, 14, 13, whatever age it is that we start to wrestle with some difficult questions, the question will continue to pop up, do I keep trusting Jesus about this? Jesus says these things, do I trust him in the same ways that I did when I was five years old and I confessed him as my Lord and Savior? Keep being responsive to Jesus as he's continually made known to you. And that's true on a weekly basis here on Sunday mornings. As I continue to try to make Jesus known to you through his word, true believers keep responding to the things that are proclaimed here. True believers study God's word, hear his word, even on their own personal time, and respond as a doer of the word. Okay? Let's see some things about the text specifically in response to how we receive the light. Number one, the benefits of receiving Jesus are applied equally. They're applied equally, it says, but to all who did receive him, who, received, who believed in his name. And then it begins to tell us some of the things that they are then given. But it applies to all who received him, all who believed in his name. I think it's always worth mentioning any time that we can. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 is another place that talks about all the spiritual blessings that are given to a believer. I think it's so important that we recognize those are applied equally across the board right? There's not some people that are higher ranking children of God than others. There's not some that get full benefits of adoption and others that only get partial benefits, right? 
the, the benefits of coming to Christ through faith get applied to everybody, no matter what background you've come from, no matter what experiences you've had previously, no matter what things you've been involved in prior to coming to Jesus, those things are given out equally. Man, it doesn't matter. God doesn't make any distinction. God doesn't make any distinction, right? So it doesn't matter our gender, doesn't matter our skin color, doesn't matter uh, the other abilities that he's given to us, right? Like the, the athletically inclined, the academically inclined, the musically inclined, right? Those things he doesn't give equally, right? Those things he distributes differently, right? Like the, the economic status that we grow up in, whether it's here or whether it's around the world, that's different. God doesn't equally distribute those things to everybody, but salvation is equally applied to everyone. Those that come, no matter what gender, no matter what skin color, no matter what culture they come from, no matter what abilities they possess already, no matter what economic status they come from, they come and receive salvation equally. It says, all who received him, all who believed in his name, they're given certain things, right? The benefits of receiving Jesus are applied equally. Number two, the avenue for receiving Jesus is by faith only, right? To all who received him, particularly those, how did they receive him? They believed in his name, right? So the avenue for receiving Jesus is by faith only. And so that's the same as well for everybody. There's not some people that get saved a different way. Not some people who get saved because they were born into a Christian family. Not some people who get saved because they were doing pretty good on their own before Jesus, right? So all who believed in him, anybody, everybody, whatever that looked like, everybody who believed in him gets these benefits, and they get them by receiving him strictly by believing in him in faith. So that idea of believing in his name, it carries the idea of believing and trusting the truth about Jesus that they are exposed to, right? So to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, number three, they're given a new identity, and it's identity that is life-changing. So these people who believed in his name believed him as he presented himself. They receive a new identity, there's some important belief passages that I think are worth writing down. So I want to give you, I want to give these to you, encourage you to write them down because we won't look at all of them. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 15. These are passages that I would say when we think about things that we have to believe or how we understand belief and salvation, these are things that are very important. These passages that give us insight. It says in uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. All right, we have to believe in the gospel. We have to repent and believe in the gospel. John chapter 1 that we're in right now. Verse 12 tells us we have to believe in his name. Right? We skip forward to John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John chapter 20, verse 31, the passage that we said is kind of the, the thesis statement for this gospel. tells us again, very specifically, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the fulfillment of God's promises, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Romans chapter 4, verse 24. Romans chapter 4, verse 24 
It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. Here we start to, to really understand what is it about Jesus we believe, what we believed in his sacrificial death. We believe in his resurrection. Romans chapter uh, 10, verse 9 is a, is a crucial passage to, to seeing that connection with the resurrection, that we have to believe in the resurrection to be saved. Romans chapter 10 Verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. A couple other passages to jot down. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 and Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Hebrews, we studied extensively that idea that we have to believe um, that, that he is accessible, right? That we can come to him and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. That, that he's a needed uh, presence for us. We, we come to Jesus and we come knowing that that he rewards those who seek him, that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him, right? And then this identity is applied to us, this life-changing identity that comes to us. It's a, a movement from enemies to family. You can look at this on your, on, on your own time, but in John chapter 8, verses 41 through 44, there is the picture of what it looks like prior to Jesus, that we're in a different family, that, that Satan is kind of pictured as, as our father. We're, we're, we're performing the works of the devil, the, the father of lies. And so prior to salvation, we're kind of in the, the enemy's camp, right? And the promise in Genesis chapter 3 is that Adam and Eve are now sinful. They're going to produce offspring that are separated from God. And Jesus says, I'm going to rescue some of their offspring back to me. I'm going to transfer them back into relationship with me. And so that's the picture of adoption where we go from this other family, this the satanic family, into the family of God, right? And so it's movement from enemies to family, and it redefines our lives, adoption does, right? It's this massive, this massive saving grace that puts us on a totally different trajectory. And just think about some of the families that you know that have, um, have engaged in adoption and think about the life-changing trajectory that that child is now on because of that, right? So Ryan and Cindy, who are close to us, Cindy's my cousin, pastor in Noonan, come and speak here sometimes, right? Like they've adopted two girls, one from overseas, one locally, right? Both of those children coming from way different way different backgrounds than they are currently in now, right? On totally different paths for their life moving forward, radically changed now, right? Tyson and Sarah pursuing adoption now with Benjamin Gavin, right? Like, has, if that doesn't happen, right? Like, where he ends up in life is way different than the trajectory that he's on now, right? Just the benefits that he enjoys, that he will enjoy of being a part of the Moore family brings brings new hope, brings, brings benefits, brings uh, a type of love and instruction that he would have not known otherwise, right? To, to have Tyson that will now engage with him as a father, and, and his father, the whereabouts, is not even known, right? So had he not engaged and he not been brought into this relationship, man, there are things that he, will, he would have never experienced that he now will experience, Right? It's the same for us through the spiritual adoption. We are brought into a family, and our, our lives are redefined by that decision, redefined by that act of God to adopt us. 
into his family. We were destined for death. We now become co-inheritors of Christ's kingdom. We're children now, and even more so in the future, right? This is an idea that John kind of clung to, this idea of a spiritual adoption that makes us children. First John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Right? One of the the byproducts of the adoption piece is that we start to become like our new family as well, right? So we're, we're adopted into God's family, and as we grow in our faith, we start to reflect more of what our Father is, right? And that's going to be true in, in the case with, uh, with Tyson and Sarah. Like, as Benjamin Gavin is growing in their family, he will start to take on the attributes and the traits of Tyson as his father, right? In, in ways that he would have not had he not entered into that adoption, but what's, what's, what's really neat for us is that we are called children now, but there's this, this thing kind of out in the future that says we are going to be absolutely made like our Heavenly Father when Jesus comes back. We are going to experience that glorification. So even now as we are start, starting to look more and more like Christ, we have this end goal kind of dangled out there in front of us that, yes, we're children now, but we are absolutely going to look like children in the future when Jesus comes back and transforms us, all right? So um, radical, life-changing identity that's applied to us in coming to faith in Christ. The identity from receiving Jesus is life-changing. Number four, the credit for receiving Jesus goes to God only. God only gets the glory when salvation takes place in the lives of his creation says he gave them the right to become children of God, those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He kind of wants to cover all of his bases here. He says that we're not saved by racial or ethnic background, right? It's not of blood. It's not of physical descent. Physical descent does not guarantee our salvation. It doesn't guarantee it, right? So we can come from a Christian family, but it doesn't mean that we're absolutely going to be saved for sure in the future, right? You could have been Jewish, but what we very clearly see in the New Testament is that being a physical descendant of Abraham does not make you a spiritual offspring of Abraham, right? Like it was, it was not of benefit to them. They did not guarantee their salvation simply by being a Jewish individual. Now, it should certainly help. It ought to help, right? We would say these that we've referenced for their adoptions, man, their, their opportunities for salvation greatly increase because now they are in Christian families where they're being exposed to the gospel. They are hearing, which is a necessary component to salvation, Romans chapter 10, right? That it's absolutely all of God, but what does he do? He chooses to use human agents to deliver the good news. How can they believe unless they hear? So it should certainly help and increase someone's opportunity for salvation to be in a Christian family where they hear the gospel exposed to them. But it does not guarantee it, right? It doesn't guarantee it. Not of blood. <clears throat> They're also not saved by the will of the flesh, which carries the idea of sincerity or emotion, right? We can't, we can't will for this to happen. It's not saved by human effort or man-made systems, nor of the will of man, which means we can't do anything to save somebody else either, 
right? Like, like we can't generate salvation for somebody. We can't make somebody believe, right? We can't, we can't have physical offspring that are guaranteed to believe in God, and we can't manipulate anything to make people believe in God. It is only of God that salvation occurs according to this passage. Not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. We can only be saved by the direct intervention of God. It's his decision ultimately to give life. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless for him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Totally of God when this happens. And if it even happens. James chapter 1, verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Totally of God, totally by God, if this occurs. Because salvation is all of God, he receives all of the glory as well, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 talk about how we're not saved by good works so that no one can boast. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel with the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Right? So God receives all the glory for salvation because it's all of him. Passage that we started our, our church plant on back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. All right. Um, number five credit goes to God, but the basis for receiving Jesus is theologically driven. It's theologically driven. For us to truly accept Jesus, we have to know who Jesus is. We have to know him as he's revealed in Scripture. And again, John gives us some very clear things about who Jesus is in verses 14 through through 18. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's theologically driven. Why we believe in Jesus, it's based on the theology of who he is as revealed to us. First off, Jesus became the God-man, fully divine and fully human through the incarnation. That's what verse 12 is attesting to. Or or sorry, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became flesh. So this is that concept of God and man merging together, what we call Jesus as the God-man, fully divine, fully human through the incarnation. He's all God and he's all man. Philippians chapter 2 verse 7 uh, is a passage you can jot down. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 is another important passage that, that deals with this. I'll read that one to you. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Colossians chapter 2 verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Great passage to understand both the deity and the humanity of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 is one that uh, we've referenced several times as well, that God had been communicating in other avenues. Now he communicates through Jesus, who is that perfect imprint of his nature. 
And we certainly see, and we'll see this as we get deeper into John, some of the humanity of Jesus. We're going to see a weary Jesus. We're going to see a thirsty Jesus. We're going to see a Jesus who groans with emotion. We're going to see a Jesus who weeps with sadness. And these aren't things he's pretending to do. These are, these are the manifestations of his humanity, right? He took on human form, and not just the appearance, not just the illusion, not like a hologram, he actually became man. He actually became man and experienced humanity for us, right? Um, and false teachers deny this. False teachers deny either the humanity or the deity of Jesus. That's why whenever you're trying to determine, is somebody a false teacher or somebody a valid teacher, you really want to hone in, what are they saying about Jesus, right? What are they saying particularly about Jesus? Who, who is he, according to, to this teacher? Um, 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Who confess, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Uh, 1 John chapter 5. This was an important thing for John that we get our theology of Jesus correct. Uh, who is, verse 5, so 1 John 5, verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In 2 John, um, let's look at verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess that the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Okay, so uh, he's the God-man. We've got to get that right. We've got to believe that correctly for salvation. Um, and, and that's important to us because he became man to be tempted like us. We spent a ton of time talking about this in Hebrews. He's the sympathetic high priest who understands us and knows our weaknesses. He became man to be an example for us, to give us an understanding for how God would have us to react to certain life situations. He became a man to die in our place. The incarnation had the crucifixion and the resurrection as its goal. Philippians 2, we see that humility of Jesus, but we see it directed towards him dying, not just any death, but death on the cross. And so uh, his humanity was absolutely necessary for our salvation. He became the visible manifestation of God's glory within human experience. Let me say that again to you. Jesus became the visible manifestation of God's glory within human experience, meaning that what was maybe in the past viewed as kind of a lofty concept about who God is, Jesus in human form now gives us the picture, right? It's equivalent to a teacher who's trying to explain a deep concept, and then for those that are more visual learners, comes in with the, with the slideshow or with the, the picture or the video to better illustrate the deep concept, right? So you have this lofty concept about the glory of God, and then God, as the, as the greatest teacher, says, let me, let me help those who are better in the visual aspect. Let me give to you my son, Jesus, in human form, right? This is what God looks like. This is the manifestation of God's glory. 
What I love is the language that John chooses to use here when it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt really means tabernacled or pitched his tent with us. So that would draw your mind back to the Old Testament if you were a Jewish individual. You'd see that word tabernacle and think, okay, God's done that before. He's tabernacled with us. He's pitched his tent before, right? He did that back in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the temporary temple until they settled in the promised land and built the permanent temple. But in both locations, it's where God's presence visibly dwelt with them. His Shekinah glory would come and, and hover over the tabernacle. And this is where the Holy of Holies was, right? This was God tabernacling with his people. Jesus, John says, Jesus now is God tabernacling with us in human form. So this is where we see a shift from worshiping God in a particular location, and we see more now the object of who we are worshiping in the form of Jesus. Jesus dwelt with us. He tabernacled with us. He redefined what it means for God's presence to be here on this earth, right? No more in this format of look to the temple, look to the tabernacle to see God's presence. It's now look to Jesus, who became a mobile manifestation of God's glory. He dwelt tabernacle with us, became the new understanding of where to meet God. And that's where we fast forward to our studies in Revelation, and we see that again in the future. Revelation 21 Verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And that's our, that's our future hope. That's our redefined, life-changing benefit of coming to faith in Christ is that we get to tabernacle with God in the future for eternity. Jesus earns the right of being heard as the greatest prophet by his eternality. So back to John, and we'll wrap up here. Um, Word of God became flesh. He dwelt among us or tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. It's again John saying, Hey, I've got this, this human relationship with Jesus. He's my cousin, and I'm six months older than him, according to Luke chapter 1, verse 36. But John the Baptist confesses and says, but he's been around a whole lot longer before me. Right? Like, I'm six months older. I'm the older cousin of Jesus, but he was before me. Because even John the Baptist connected the fact that Jesus' humanity began six months after John the Baptist's birth, but his existence has no beginning Right? And so he's the, he's the better prophet because he was the prophet before John the Baptist was. Right? So John testifies to the greatness of Jesus. And then lastly, Jesus revealed God's glory as seen through grace and truth. This is the last thing I want us to see here. It says, um, we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then you fast forward down to verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one's ever seen God, the only God who was at the Father's side. He has made him known. Right? So Jesus makes visibly known to us the glory of God, which can be understood through the concepts of grace and truth. Now, can anybody think of where somebody requested to see God's glory in similar language that we see here? 
Anybody remember where that would take place? Like Moses requests, he says, I want to see God, right? So let's back up real quick to Exodus chapter 33, verse 17. And this helps us to understand what we mean by glory. Because I'm going to define glory as the greatness of God seen visibly, right, through this avenue of grace and truth. Because back in Exodus chapter 33, verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Okay, so God says, I'm going I'm to let my glory pass before you, but I'm also going to protect you. So you skip down into Exodus 34, verse 5, and look at what the account looks like for his glory to be shown. Verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Right? This is the balance of of truth and grace, right? This is God saying, I have every intention of showing grace and saving people. But I will, not val- I will not violate the truth of my justice to do it, right? How easy would it have been for God to just say, you know what, you bunch of sinners, I'm just going to forgive you, right? Like I'm just going to overlook it. I'm just going to let you into heaven. We're just going to act like none of this ever happened, right? That, that would have been the easy thing. But it would have spoken against God's justice because how many of you have had people wrong you that would kind of feel this this, this irk inside of you that says they shouldn't get away with that, right? Like it's not okay for them to get away with that. Justice needs to, to come towards that individual because all of us would filter it through and say, I'm not as bad as that person, so I'm all about God forgiving me, but I'm not okay with God forgiving him, right? And so God says, here's how I work. I maintain the truth of my justice. I will by no means just overlook the guilty, but I will absolutely extend grace and mercy. And how does he do that? He does it through Jesus on the cross, right? Jesus absorbs God's wrath. Jesus takes the punishment. So everybody that's ever wronged you, that wrong gets dealt with on the cross. So absolutely justice happens. Absolutely God pours out justice in a truthful way, but also allows it to be sprinkled with grace right, so that his blood can count for us on our behalf. And so when we think about God's glory, what does that look like? I mean, that's Jesus coming in human form to show both truth and grace. And he does that in all of his interactions. He does that in all of his interactions. He's very truthful in his interactions, but he's very gracious when he communicates that truth. 
kind of echoes back to the book that I told you that my staff was reading that a pastor locally wrote, Graciousness, right? It's all about us communicating truth with grace. Because I believe now we're supposed to be agents of this as, as representatives of Jesus, as his ambassadors. He came in grace and truth, and we're supposed to be grace and truth to everybody that we come in contact with as well, okay? Um, Jesus embodies, embodies the perfect balance of truth and grace. He doesn't deny his character or his justice, but he doesn't treat us with truth only. He extends grace beyond the law's capabilities. Romans chapter 5, 18 through 21 is a great place to look for that. He extends grace beyond the law's capabilities. So you see uh, the law being given back in John chapter 1. Law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ in a much better way. His covenant is better. We saw that in Hebrews. Ultimately, I like how one commentator said it, Jesus is the exegesis of the Father. And that term exegesis means explanation or interpretation. So when we talk about exegeting scripture, we're talking about explaining it or interpreting it. Jesus is the exegesis of the Father. He is the explanation of the Father. He is the interpretation of the Father. How do we know the Father? We look to the Son, who is God, who is in human form. He's the visible manifestation of God's glory. Okay? So from an application standpoint, two questions that I want to leave you with. So I've told you we need to be aware that many are going to refuse Jesus, and we have to be responsive to Jesus personally and keep being responsive to him as he's made known to us. Application questions for you to kind of consider and process leaving today. Number one, is your identity as a child of God what most people think about you first? So think about those contexts. Do people in your neighborhood, do people at work, do people in your family, do people in your hobbies Do they think about your identity with Jesus first? Is that your identity, what you are known for first when people mention you? I remember when I went off to Liberty, um, being that it's in Virginia, but it's a Christian school and one of the prominent Christian schools, it wasn't necessarily that it was a heavy state school, right? You go to UGA, and I've, I've ventured to say the bulk of the population hails from Georgia, right? But when you went to Liberty, you encountered people from all kinds of states, right? People that were coming from out of state. And I remember being very intentional to kind of hold on to my identity as somebody from Georgia when I was there, right? Like I wanted people to know I'm here in Virginia, but I don't claim Virginia as my home, right? Like I'm from Georgia. And I remember wanting people to know that. Like I wanted to identify with that. And so that was even in the ways that I dressed, in the things that I did, in the ways that I talked. Like I did not want to lose my identity of being somebody from Georgia, right? I don't want that to be what people know me as now, right? Like, I don't want to be known in an identity standpoint as a fan of the Georgia Bulldogs, right? Like, I don't want that to be the first thing that people think of when they think of me. Do I like watching college football? Do I root for Georgia? Yeah. But when people think of Adam Vincent, I don't want them to think Georgia fan, outdoorsman, loves to hunt, likes big trucks. Like, are those part of things that I enjoy? Yeah, absolutely. But for some people, that is their identity, right? Like, that's their identity, and it's completely wrapped up in those things. I don't want that to be what I'm primarily known for, right? Like, I want people to, when they think about me, to think about me as a child of God. And I want them to think of me as so different as we think of people that we know that have been adopted into new families, right? Like their old identity, so drastically different to what they are now 
as they've been placed into this new family. So is your identity as a child of God what most people think about you first? And then secondly, are you faithfully exposing others in your context to the glory of God so that they are without excuse, right? The glory of God is the greatness of him visibly. So we have a responsibility to help others in our context see how great God is. Now, this isn't the motivation for why we would do this, but, and I don't think it necessarily plays out this way, but on Judgment Day, will there be people from your neighborhood, from, from your family, from your workplace, that part of their without excuse concept will be because they worked with you, right? Romans 3 says that every mouth will be shut when they stand before God because every man will be found to be without excuse. Are there people in your neighborhood that are without excuse because God's gonna say, I mean, you live next to, to, to Daniel and Nicole. You lived in the same neighborhood as those people, and I know they made my glory known in that context, right? Like you were aware of my excellencies. You were aware of my greatness. You had every advantage because you lived in a neighborhood with Daniel and Nicole. You're without excuse, Right? Like, I don't want people to stand before God one day from my neighborhood or from where I work or from my family and, and, and that not be something that, that led to them. I, obviously, I want them to stand there because I exposed them to the greatness of God. But I certainly don't want them to stand there and to have not been made aware more so of the greatness and the excellencies of God because I didn't shine my light. Are you faithfully exposing others in your context to the glory of God so that they are without excuse? Are people benefiting by knowing the glory of God more, knowing his excellencies, knowing his greatness, because they are blessed to work with you. They're blessed to live near you. They're blessed to have the same interests as you. And because of that, they are being made made aware of God's greatness more because they're connected to you in some of these ways. And if that's not the case, again, that's where I would say we need to back up and say, what can I do moving forward to make sure people in my family my neighborhood, my hobbies, my workplace, know God better because of the things that I'm intentionally doing. All right, let's pray together. God, we thank you that Jesus, who is the word, came and dwelt with us. God, we're thankful that your glory was made known to us in a tangible way where we can see you in human form demonstrating grace and truth, which are both big indicators of what your glory is. That you're a God who is merciful and gracious, loving and kind, but is a God who does not violate his truth and his justice. And God, we see that so perfectly manifested in Jesus. God, help us to realize we have a responsibility to respond to everything that Jesus has said about himself We need to keep responding to everything that we're learning about Jesus as well moving forward. And God, we want to be people who are very intentional to expose others to your son, Jesus. People that we live near, people that we work with, people that you've allowed us to be connected to because of family ties. People that share the same interests as us. God, help people to benefit from those things by having us around in those contexts because they get a a better glimpse of you through our actions, our attitudes, our words. God, help us to do a better job of 
manifesting your glory through our own lives as your children. God, help our identities to be wrapped up in what you say about us and not what others say about us and not what we want to say about ourselves. Help our identities to be totally wrapped up in what you say about us. As your children, help us to reflect you as we continue to grow up. Help us to reflect you more and more as we look forward to the day when we will be made just like you at the return of Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.